Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open together to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20, our text today, verses 1 through 8. One of the silly statements that I often hear made by critics of the Bible, the Bible's veracity and trustworthiness, is that the Bible is an ancient document and therefore has little or nothing to say of relevance for a modern, and you can read there, sophisticated folks like us. And then comes along a little microscopic virus, and we realize that we're not as sophisticated as maybe we perceived ourselves to be. In fact, we're a whole lot more like our ancestors and forefathers than we ever thought. The question in our text today, by the way, the action of which took place 2,000 years ago, is the question on almost everyone's lips in our own culture, which interestingly enough is the title of the message today, and that is, who has the authority? Now, people are debating and wondering, does the President of the United States have the authority to close down and reopen businesses? Or is that uh, the purview of state government or local officials, perhaps? Or should we be listening to the scientists or the medical community? Who has the authority? Well, just to remind you, as chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke begins, Jesus has made his way to the holy city of Jerusalem. Remember that he commandeered a young unbroken donkey and rode down the western slope of the Mount of Olives and entered through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem to applause and adulation from the crowds. Hosanna, they cried. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, these words angered Jesus' enemies. They wanted him to rebuke the crowd and make them stop praising him. Jesus would not do that. Jesus entered the city. He began to weep over the future of the city. He knew in his omniscience that in just a few years that his prophecies that the city would be destroyed would be fulfilled. And yet he had a mission. He drove the money changers and the sellers from the temple grounds. And then he, we believe, retreated back to Bethany to his home base, the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Let's read verse 47 of Luke chapter 20 and then through our text today. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They could, find, could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. And on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him and they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I, I will also ask you a question and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May the Lord add his blessing 
to the reading and hearing of his word. Now the culture in which Jesus lived and taught and moved about put great significance on this concept of authority. Well, let's define authority. Authority simply defined is the right to give orders, to make decisions and to enforce obedience. Jesus is claiming for himself the right to tell us how to live our lives and has an expectation that we obey. But humans in our fallen condition hate authority, don't we? Think back to the Garden of Eden. That's really how sin entered the world. God gave all of these wonderful benefits and blessings of living in this paradise to our first parents, Adam and Eve, with only one prohibition, not to eat of this tree that was in the midst of the garden. But Satan appealed to authority. Has God really said that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die? He really appealed to the idea that God was trying to suppress them in some way. And so Eve, of course, gave into temptation and, and so did Adam. Think also of Romans chapter one, when the apostle Paul is describing the human condition. He says that the wrath of God has been revealed because man has suppressed the truth that he knows about God in his unrighteousness. That is against a mountain of evidence that God created the universe, that he is sovereign and he has the right and authority to make demands of us. Man stubbornly resists that and instead of worshiping the true God and obeying the true God, man creates gods, little g, in his own image. Gods that man can control and gods that man can ultimately get along with. Gods that don't hold him accountable, in other words. Well, authority is expressed in a multitude of ways. But in the human condition, in three primary categories, the first place that we encounter authority, most of us, is in our family unit. Our first taste of authority is uh, discipline from a parent. And in Jesus' day, of course, the Romans governed most of the world. Uh, the Romans had a law called pater familias. And the idea is that the father of a family was sort of a king over a kingdom. And he had the right, really, of life and death of anyone in his family. And they also controlled the, the second area of authority, which is the political sphere. That empire had spread far and wide and included that region of the world in which Jesus lived, present day Israel. And the way they governed was through sheer brute force. Someone got out of line, they put down that rebellion instantly and violently, as Jesus predicted was going to happen in 70 AD, and it did in Jerusalem. And then a third place of authority in most people's lives is their religion. That is, they, they have a system of beliefs and those who administrate that system. And in the case of Israel, that was a system of priests and elders, councils, the Sanhedrin, and all of these um, systems were extremely hierarchical in nature. Everyone had a role and a place within that hierarchy. But as we think about those three areas of authority, it comes to our mind that God instituted his plan in all three of those areas. For example, in the family. He defines that a family begins with one man and, and one woman, and then children who are raised in that context. Children have their role. Moms have their role. Fathers have their role. Husbands and wives have roles within the family. God also instituted government, don't forget. It was his idea. And he gave mankind government to punish evildoers, the scripture says, and to reward the righteous. But he's also given us an institution called the church. 
And that is he has granted to every Christian some unique spiritual gift, but he's also gifted the church with leadership, pastors, teachers, deacons. And yet, even though God has prescribed how that authority structure is to work in his Bible, almost all the friction and relational turmoil in the world is in one of those three categories, in the family, in the political sphere, or in the religious sphere. Why is that? It's because of what Paul said in Romans 1, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness because men, humanity, rejects the ultimate authority of God, they seek to make their own way. Well, that's what was happening, of course, as Jesus entered Jerusalem. With that background, we now look at our outline of our text. The first thing we see in verse 1 of Luke chapter 20 is the priority of preaching. The priority of preaching. On one of the days, that is, he was going that week before his crucifixion, he was going into the city from Bethany. He was going to the temple. He was preaching and teaching there. And then he would go back to Bethany. And he did that day after day until the night of, of his arrest. And so, uh, again, remember, this is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's about to die. This is either Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, just a few dozen hours in either case before his crucifixion. So let me ask you a question. If you knew for certain that you were going to die within 48 hours, how would you spend your time? Maybe you'd get together with your closest friends and family members. Jesus did that. He spent time with his disciples, of course, had meals with them, visited with his uh, inner circle. Um, but he, he really did what he'd always been doing. He, he was teaching in the temple, verse 47, chapter 19 says, he was preaching the gospel. I think it's a very good practice because none of us knows when the Lord's going to call us home. It's a good practice to live every day in such a way that you would not have to fundamentally change your lifestyle to please the Lord if you knew it was your day to die. So Jesus apparently was going to the temple grounds and there were these huge open air courts. One of those was called the court of the Gentiles. That's where much of the buying and selling went on. And so after Jesus had cleared the, the buyers and the sellers, the, the, the area was still full of thousands of people who were mingling and mixing and speaking. And, and Jesus was going from group to group, I take it, teaching and preaching. The scripture says of Jesus teaching that it was different than the teaching of the other rabbis because he taught as one having authority. Now take from that that he wasn't just quoting what someone had told him or he had heard or he had gleaned from sitting under the feet of other rabbis. This was direct revelation because he is God in the flesh. So that's how his ministry started. We go back to read the four gospels and Jesus' earthly ministry started after his baptism in the wilderness experience. His way of life was go from village to village teaching and preaching the gospel. Now, what do we mean when he, he was teaching and he was preaching the gospel? What was the content of Jesus' teaching ministry? What was his curriculum? Well, he, he often talked about the kingdom, didn't he? He talked about that uh, some are outside of the kingdom and some are inside the kingdom. And he talked about uh, the concept of the kingdom being in your midst. We talk about the concept of the already and, and not yet, that, that the kingdom has come uh, into the hearts of men, but there's coming a day when he will rule and reign over all his creation. He talked about sin and judgment and righteousness. And when the Holy Spirit came, that was the role of the Holy Spirit to convince 
men through preaching of their personal sin guilt, the judgment that was to come and the righteousness that is Christ and can be theirs. But ultimately the scripture says he was preaching the gospel. And that word has a very clear meaning. It means good news. And to preach means to proclaim. And when we preach the gospel, we are proclaiming the good news that Jesus died for sinners and he makes salvation available to all who will repent of sins and believe on him. In other words, what Jesus spent his last hours doing was explaining the meaning of the Holy Scriptures. Now, if these things, that is teaching and preaching the gospel, were so important to Jesus that he spent his last hours on earth doing them, who are we to think that we have a, a better strategy? I never cease to be amazed at what vaudevillian stunts are being passed off in many churches as biblical preaching. And if it's not some vaudevillian stunt, it's therapeutic, therapeutic psychology with a thin veneer of scripture and Christianity. If it's not psychology, it's, it's the power of positive thinking that is more at home on the couch of the afternoon talk show than it is in the church of the living God. God has declared that his ordained means of salvation is the preaching of the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing a message that is teaching about Jesus Christ, the gospel. But you hear people say, well, pastor, if we teach the Bible, especially if we teach it in full dosage, it's going to turn people off. It won't be popular. You are right. Not if it's done correctly. Listen, Jesus never called any Christian or any church to popularity. Hold your place there in Luke chapter 20 and, and turn quickly with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that has a lot of problems um, and uh, they have disunity in the church. There's, there's sin that needs to be addressed within the church, but ultimately these people are believers. And so the Apostle Paul has a prescription for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, we read this, For Christ did not send me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That is, Paul understood his marching orders to do the same thing that Jesus did, to preach and proclaim the gospel. He says, not in cleverness of speech, not in some novel or new approach, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That is, in our haste to be novel and relevant, sometimes we obscure the cross, either intentionally or unintentionally. And then he says this in verse 18, for the word of the cross, that is the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased, hear this, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He's saying that God ordained the means of a lost person getting saved is by hearing the proclaimed gospel message. 
And he says to those who reject it, that message of a God taking on human flesh, living a perfect life and dying in the place of the sinners through substitutionary atonement is foolishness, nonsense to them. But to those who are being saved, we realize that it's true. It's the power of God to save us. And then he goes on. But he says, verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So there's two negative reactions to the gospel from two different groups. The Greeks, the Gentiles, look at the gospel of this, they would perceive weak Jewish man dying on the cross in place of other people as utter nonsense. And then the Jewish people look at their Messiah being put to death as a stumbling block. They trip over that. And what they trip over is the idea that they have to come on his terms the same way as a Gentile would. And yet the message, our marching orders have never changed. God ordained the preaching of the gospel as the means through which lost people would be saved. And so that's why Paul wrote to his young protege, Pastor Timothy, and he told him to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, 2, in season, out of season. That is when people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that the way the gospel is passed from generation to generation is faithful men pass it down to faithful men who continue passing it down to faithful men generation after generation. That's not something the apostle Paul made up. The Lord Jesus preached the gospel, his entire earthly ministry, and was preaching it right up until the last hours before his death. And so must we. Now, the second thing we see in verse two, back in Luke chapter 20, is the accusation about authority. Verse two, and they spoke saying to him, that is the scribes and Pharisees were following Jesus around the temple grounds, trying to catch him in some sin or some way that they could perceive him to be out of order. Of course, they never could. And so they spoke saying to him, verse two, tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who is the one who gave you the authority? There's that question again, who has the authority? Where, where did you get this nerve to tell people how to live, to, to heal the sick? We didn't authorize that. You don't have a license to be here. And, and I'm not being facetious. Teachers in that day had to be ordained through the Sanhedrin. They had to have uh, their credentials. But Jesus never asked the Sanhedrin permission for anything. And that galled the elders. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was healing. And perhaps the thing they were pointing to the most is who gave you the right to empty the temple of those money changers and sellers? Because some of them as we saw lost, last week, lost income because of that. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees had become united in their hatred for Jesus. Jesus had exposed the Pharisees as religious hypocrites and he had exposed the Sadducees for their greed. And now they come together, these sworn enemies, to do away with Jesus. He didn't play by their rules. So, so was Jesus just a rebel? Sometimes we see Jesus portrayed in movies. He's, he's 
sort of a wallflower. In other movies, he's this political revolutionary. Was Jesus a rebel with a cause, or did Jesus really have authority? Well, let's see what the scripture has to say. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus is speaking. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. He says, all authority has been handed over to me. Philippians 2, 9, Paul says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That is, there's no one with greater authority than Jesus. Colossians 2, 10, and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rulers and authorities. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been granted to me, Jesus says to his disciples, in heaven and on earth. That is in every sphere, in the spiritual, in the physical realm. He says, because I have all that authority, I can give you your commandment, which is to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3, 22, Jesus is at the right hand of God, which is the place of authority. John 3, 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Ephesians 1, 20, which he brought about in Christ, who he raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So yes, Jesus has authority. He doesn't need the permission of the Sanhedrin, doesn't need the permission of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he certainly doesn't need our permission. He is God. He sits on his throne. He does whatsoever he pleases. And that leads us to a damning dilemma that these elders found themselves in. Again, verse two, and they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things and who is the one who gave you the authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question. Don't you just love it when someone answers a question with a question? You tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so Jesus invokes the name of John the Baptist. Remember they're surrounded by hundreds of people at this point listening to this conversation. And, and so the elders demand of Jesus, tell us where you got this authority. They're trying to trap him. If he said, I got it from our father who is in heaven, they say, aha, this is blasphemy. And so he answers, return volley with a question. You, you answer me this, John the Baptist, was he from God or, or not? You remember John the Baptist, he was the cousin of Jesus, born shortly before Jesus was to his parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias. He grew up to be a prophet. The Holy Spirit was upon him from his mother's womb. He was a different kind of guy. He lived out in the wilderness by himself. He wore a coat of camel's hair and he ate uh, locusts and wild honey. People were coming out to him to hear him preach. And he was preaching the same message that Jesus preached. That is repentance and faith. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of God was at hand. And John was out there in the wilderness baptizing people in the Jordan River. Now, what did that baptism symbolize, the baptism of John? Well, there was a provision in the Old Testament law that if a Gentile, someone who's born outside of the Jewish culture, wanted to become Jewish, they had to go through a ceremony in which they were baptized. 
And the implication of this was not lost on these Jewish people who were going out to hear John preach. He was saying, you must repent and you must come the same way as the Gentiles. That is, you have to come as a total outsider, someone who doesn't have the rights and privileges of intimacy and fellowship with God because you've been separated by sin. And of course, many of the religious leaders rejected that, that they like to lean on their pedigree. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, had quite a resume as a Jewish man. He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, as touching the law, blameless. Paul liked to point to those things before he was saved that he thought made him right with God. But when he came face to face with the risen Lord on that Damascus road, he never mentioned those credentials again in a positive way. He mentioned them just to say they were worthless. They came to a sum total of zero. And so Jesus says, look back at John the Baptist. Was he from God or not? Well, these religious leaders that were trying to catch Jesus in a trap, they were evil to say the least, but they were not stupid. They knew if they said John wasn't from God that it would cause a revolution. The people that were listening in on the conversation, the common people held John up as a great prophet, not only as a prophet, but as a martyr. Because remember he had been put to death by this wicked King Herod. And so they uh, decided that uh, the greater part of, of valor is discretion. And so they sort of shrugged their shoulders. We, we don't know. And so Jesus said, okay, so nor, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that is our fourth and final point, which is a tragic termination of this conversation. And I think it's more than a termination of this particular conversation. I, I think it's a point in Jesus' ministry where he consciously said, I'm no longer going to debate with these people. Uh, I, I'm no longer going to try to associate with him. Because remember in the early days of Jesus' ministry, he would go to the homes of the Pharisees, even though, even though he knew that he was there uh, to try to be tricked. Um, he would do some of his greatest teaching in the presence of the Pharisees. But, but now he seems to say, that's it for you. Because what he understood is that the problem with the lack of belief among the religious leaders was not lack of information. That's the excuse we hear sometimes from people that have maybe grown up in church all their lives. If I, if I had a little more information about Jesus, I could make a decision on whether or not the Bible is true. If he would perform some miracle in my life, then I would trust him and believe on him. If I could just have one more shred of evidence, in other words, I'd turn my life over to Christ. And of course, these Pharisees were present when Jesus had performed some of his greatest miracles. You'll find, by the way, in the scriptures, none of the Pharisees ever doubting or disparaging the veracity of Jesus' miracles. They were well documented and proven to be true. And so what they try to do is, is by what authority are you doing this? They tried to accuse Jesus of doing this through the power and the authority of Satan at various times. So their problem was not lack of information. They had a mountain of, ev of evidence that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. They had the Old Testament prophets who they could quote a chapter and verse. They had eyewitness accounts, which was required in their system of doing things. They, they had thousands of people 
whose lives had been forever changed by Jesus. And in many cases, they had seen it with their own eyes and heard it with their own ears. Yet they stubbornly, willfully refused to bow their knee to Christ's authority. As I think about that, I think that is reflective of our own culture today here in the United States. And I know there are pockets and individuals in the country who've never heard the gospel. But by and large, if you can grow up in the United States of America and have access to the multiple types of media that we have, it's highly unlikely that you've never heard the gospel message. What is more likely is that like the Pharisees, having a mountain of evidence, you willfully, stubbornly refuse to bow your knee to his authority. And maybe you're asking the same question in your own life of Jesus that the Pharisees were asking there on the temple grounds that day. What gives you the right? Why do you have authority? And let me give you a reason why the Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to make commands to us and to expect obedience. And that is because he created us for his own glory. We've been studying the attributes of God in our systematic theology class. And, and one of the attributes of all three members of the Trinity is that they are eternal. They've always existed. And we, we see that proven out in, in Genesis chapter 1, where God the Father spoke the universe into existence and the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it's, it says the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was there as well. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things created by Him and through Him, and nothing was created that has been created except through Him. Jesus created us for His glory, therefore He has the authority and the power to command us and expect obedience. And yet we have the same fundamental problem in our fallen nature as our first parents did, and that was an aversion to authority. When the Apostle Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 17, in verse 30, he was speaking to a group of people who thought very highly of themselves, who were part of that, that group of people that he described in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, who would say the simple message of the cross would be put in the category of foolishness. And yet he looks them right in the eye, and this is what he declares. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, you, you know the inclusive nature of this command to repent, that all people everywhere. And it harkens back to what Paul wrote in Romans when he said that all men are without excuse because God has put into their heart a knowledge of himself. He has revealed himself in what has been made in nature and creation. And he's put his law upon their hearts and they have a conscience and they know right from wrong. And yet they suppress that knowledge of God and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That is through repeated and habitual sin. And rather than acknowledging the authority that is rightly their creators, they start spinning logs and making little wooden statues or else melting down ore and pouring molten lava into cast. 
and then bowing down and worshiping those gods of their own creation. And again, man is not so sophisticated today. Maybe not as many cultures still are, are bowing down to wooden and silver idols, though some are. But in our culture, we bow to the idols of materialism. We bow to the material idols of academia and science. We bow to the idols of entertainment every day. And the scripture says that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the very first thing that God commanded is that we would have no other gods before him. And he's commanded that we would not create any graven images, anything that would compete with the authority that only he has. And so our message today is the same message of Jesus Christ hours before his crucifixion. It's the same message of the apostle Paul in his day during his missionary journeys. And it is the same message of every true Christian church for the last 2000 years that God declares that all people everywhere should repent, which means to turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ. Why? Why not just live and let live? Why not let a lost and dying world go along their merry way, as long as they're not harming anyone else? Well, he says, verse 31, because he, Christ, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, that of course being Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Remember what we said Easter Sunday morning, why the resurrection is so essential, why it's so important, because it proves certain things. Number one, it proves that uh, all the claims of Jesus as God in the flesh are true. It proves that God the Father is altogether pleased and satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. And it proves that our blessed hope of the resurrection is real. And so Paul uses that in his gospel message. And he says that God has promised that he has fixed a day of judgment in the future. The book of Hebrews says it's appointed to every man wants to die and then to be judged. And the proof that that is true he says is that he's raised Christ from the dead. That is the summary line under all of the Old Testament prophecies, the, the ironclad guarantee that everything God has said is true is the fulfillment of the resurrection. There is nothing that takes more power than raising the dead. And if God will execute the resurrection, he will execute all of his promises. And so he has the authority to do that because he created us. He told us what was going to happen. He has a plan that will never be thwarted by man or any other being. And he's going to bring it to its conclusion. And friend, what about you? Where do you stand in the grand scheme of things? Are, are you an outsider looking in? wondering if these things are so, or are you born again? Have these words become real to you? Have you heard this gospel message that Jesus was preaching that, that you're a sinner? You were born a sinner and you sin all the time. You displease God with word and thought and action and you stand guilty before him. And don't forget, he's saying, 
that has eternal implications because one day you're going to die. That's not the end of things. Then you're going to stand be before your creator, the, the righteous judge of the universe who has all authority. And he's either going to welcome you to eternal bliss in heaven based upon your relationship with his son and your faith that you placed in him through his death, burial and resurrection on the cross, or you're going to be cast out forever into outer darkness, into a literal hell. And what about you? The good news gospel that Jesus proclaimed in his last hours is that you don't have to spend eternity separated from God. You, you can spend eternity in perfect and sweet fellowship with him. And it's not based on what you have to do to make up for your past. It's not what you have to do to please him. It's based on his inherent pleasure in his son and what he has done. And what he did is he died in the place of sinner. He took the punishment that we rightly deserved at the cross. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every Christian who has ever existed in human history has this thing in common. They have given up trying to please God through their own efforts. And they have accepted as a gift what Christ has done in their place. All of us are sinners. Romans 3.23 makes that explicitly clear. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Christians are, are sinners who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that every person who hears this message today either has already bowed your knee to the authority and the Lordship of Jesus, or you will today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that your word is active and alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, in 2,000 years, it's not become dull. Father, we don't need to dress it up. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to make it relevant to a modern culture. It is relevant today as the newspaper that came out this morning. We are not fundamentally different than our ancestors and our descendants will not be fundamentally different than us. We have one basic need and that is to have our relationship that was broken through sin restored to you, our creator, God. You have all authority in heaven and earth and will forever and ever. And one day you're going to judge us based upon our obedience to this commandment to repent. And really only two categories of people, those who obey that commandment and those who reject it. There on the temple grounds that day, there were some who received it. There were some who rejected it. And Father, I pray that no one who hears this sermon today would walk away apathetic or disinterested, that by your spirit, through this proclaimed message of your authority, you would draw men and women unto yourself. And when that happens, we are going to be very careful to give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.